Okay, good morning, everybody. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we ask that you'd be with us this morning and give us uh, attention and, and um, alertness and the ability to understand your word and to apply it to ourselves and to grow from this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, we are moving into chapter 18 of the book of Acts. And I just want to uh, remind you, let's see, I have this up here. There we go. So chapter 18 um, is kind of in the middle and towards the end, actually towards the end of um, the, what we call the second missionary journey, okay? So the first one was pretty small. I don't have the map of the first one up here, but the first one started here and kind of came down here to Cyprus and up around here and then back again. So geographically pretty small area, all right? The second missionary journey, you can see he comes again, leaves from Antioch, the Apostle Paul, now with Silas instead of Barnabas, and comes all the way over here. Remember, he gets to Troas and has a vision from God of a man who lives in Macedonia, which is over here, which is Europe, all right? This is not Europe. This we call Asia Minor today. Well, we don't call that today, but today we call it Turkey, right? So that, but it's not Europe. Technically, it's a different continent. And he gets called by God through vision over to Macedonia. So he goes and finds a woman in Philippi, um, and she's the first convert, Lydia, in Europe. Remember that story? And now, so now we're in, in Europe, and he, we've read how he goes across these little towns and lands last week in Athens. So that's where we left him off last week. And from Athens, we're going to see he goes across to Corinth. And uh, we're going to talk about the differences between Athens and Corinth. But I want you to see the, the spread of the gospel is what I want you to see on the map, Okay. Starts out, remember, just a hundred and some people in the upper room after the resurrection in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit falls on them on the day of Pentecost. 2,000 or so are saved. And then over a period of years, you see the gospel beginning to spread throughout the, throughout the known world at the time. And that is exactly what Jesus said would happen. You'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, which is the region just north of Jerusalem, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this doesn't look like the uttermost parts of the earth to us, except um, remember what Paul was walking. <laughs> okay. And he's not even done yet. He's going to end up in Rome, as we'll see it towards the end of the book. Yeah, let's walk to Rome. So let's read uh, this, this chapter I, I had, I forgot to put the slide in that kind of gives you the breakdown of chapter 18. It starts in, in Corinth, basically, and then you have this little period where he's kind of moving, and then we end up um, with him starting on the third missionary journey. It kind of happens without noticing, as we'll see in a minute. So that's kind of, again, three sections. So we're just going to start reading. Uh, and the first section, chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, this is in Corinth. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, 
a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And so it says, after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. So last, we saw last week how the Apostle Paul was asked by the philosophers and the academics, remember, uh, to speak in the place where in Athens where philosophers and academics got together and spoke, right? It's called the Areopagus on a particular hill in, in, in Athens. And do you remember what was the response to that sermon? I'll read it to you. You, you probably don't have this memorized, do you? Uh, Acts seventeen thirty-two to 34 says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Right? What a f- stupid, what are you, now you're talking about the resurrection of the dead, right? You know, and it's not, it's not for the same reasons so much that, we, that people today sneer at the resurrection of the dead. It's because today, you know, we're, we're all scientists and naturalists and we don't, materialists, we don't believe there is anything after death. They would have had philosophical reasons for sneering at this. The body itself is evil. And so you're saying the hope, our hope should be getting our body back? That's crazy if you're thinking like a Greek, okay? So they sneer. But others said, eh, we'll hear you again concerning this. Someday maybe you can come back and talk to us again, you know? So, after, so Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. All right, so a couple of people, a few people believed. One fairly significant man who is a, an Areopagite, that means someone who's a part of the academy, part of that, that world, that philosophical, academic, intellectual world, right? One man and some others. But generally, not a, not a huge response, right? Some people want to say, well, it's because he, of his methods. It had nothing to do with his methods. It had to do with the audience. Remember what Paul writes to the Corinthians, okay? He's gonna, we see here, <clears throat> he lands, he goes from Athens, and the next city is Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians... Later, after he establishes the church there and is gone, he's writing back to them. Remember what he says um, in chapter 1. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Well, they're in Athens, (laughs) but that's not what he's asking, right? He just left there. Uh, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Think about this. When Paul wrote this passage in 1 Corinthians 1, he had to have been remembering the history of how he came to Corinth. He came from, to Corinth from Athens, right? The home of the wise, the noble, the highborn. And when he preached the gospel in Athens, the wise men either sneered or yawned, right? They either sneered or yawned, you know? They either, um, what was the word that they used? Sneered, yeah, it is the word sneer. Or they said, yeah, we'll, we'll hear, hear you again about this someday. Next, you know. So they either sneered or yawned. But what happens when he comes to Corinth? Well, look what it says. Uh, we got to go backwards, don't we? Yeah. After these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, he came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working. For by trade, they were tent makers. Now, we're going to get into that in a second, but think about the differences between Athens and Corinth. All right. Athens, again, the home of the wise, the home of the educated, the intellectual, the philosophical. Corinth is Las Vegas. You know? I mean, you don't, you don't go to Las Vegas for the, for, the, for the deep wisdom and philosophical understanding, okay? You, you don't go to Corinth because of the, philo- the philosophical depth of wi- wisdom and learning and sophistication, okay? It's a, it's a bad place. I mean, Athens is a bad place too, but in, in a different way. If you think of Bloomington, I mean, Blo- Bloomington is so small and tiny, but we're going to compare it to Athens like we did last week. Um, what is Corinth? Well, Las Vegas, right? Um, the, the thing is, you don't get a Corinth without Athens. Think about, um, you certainly don't get a Las Vegas without Bloomington, and I mean that quite literally. You don't get Las Vegas without Bloomington. You didn't, don't get Las Vegas without Alfred Kinsey and without um, Herman Wells, the chancellor, or I guess he was the president at the time, wasn't he, of IU, giving cover for and promoting Alfred Kinsey. And IU then promoting and glorying in the so-called work of Alfred. You don't, get, you don't get everything that happens in Vegas stays in Vegas without Bloomington, you understand? You know that's, that's the little sales motto of, of Las Vegas, you hear this on the radio? They're not talking, what do you think they're talking about? Everything that happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. They're, they're, they're talking about sexual immorality. That's what they're talking about. They're not talking about gambling. You know what I'm saying? So there's a connection between the intellectual kind of academic, philosophical 
you know, world of a place like Athens or a place like Bloomington and the open debauchery that you have in a place like Las Vegas. Uh, and, and in Athens, it's all about what? What is, what is the Apostle Paul grieved by, vexed by when he's in Athens? Remember? He's walking through Athens and what does he see? The idols, the, the rank, you know, idolatry. Well, what does idolatry lead to? Romans 1, remember Romans 1? There's a big list of, it's all about the idolatry of mankind. And at the end of Romans 1, it all degenerates, idolatry naturally degenerates into what? All kinds of sexual debauchery. And it's specifically sexual debauchery. Um, all right? Anyway. When he comes to Corinth, he finds a couple of Jews. The Jews had been expelled from, all the Jews had been expelled from Rome by the Roman emperor of the time, Claudius. Why? Because, because of Jesus. Uh, they had become, we've read this over and over, this shouldn't surprise us. What happens when Christians come to town and start preaching, no matter what town it is? If there are Jews there, what happens? Hmm? What, yeah, what kind of trouble happens? Is it, it, it's rioting, okay? And so the Jews got so, uh, the, the Romans got so tired of the Jews rioting every time, any time Christians came around that they kicked them all out. They just said, get away. All of the Jews, get away. And Jews and, you know, a lot of the Christians at the time were Jews, so everybody, all the Jews had to go. But it's because of their rioting. It's because of their constant troublemaking over the preaching of Jesus, okay? That's why they're kicked out of Rome. And so you have these two, this couple, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, and, and they're, they've been moved out of Rome, you know, in the providence of God, to Corinth. There they meet Paul. And they are workers. They're tent makers. They're not academics. They're not... Um, I won't say they're not intellectuals, as we'll see in a minute, but they're not academics. They're workers. And their trade in particular is tent making, and that would have been fabric or felt or leather or something. Um, hard work. And of course, it says, here's the surprise. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, the Apostle Paul is a worker. And he finds these two, and evidently they are already Christians, and he stays with, stays with them and works. So this is the Apostle Paul. You know, we take this for granted because we all know this fact. Most of us, if you know the Bible, you know the fact that he was a tent maker. But you've got to really feel the weirdness of this to us. It wasn't weird to them, but it's definitely weird to us, right? Um, the Apostle Paul, the rabbi of rabbis, right? He had been raised at the feet of Gamaliel, the most uh, famous um, Jewish academic of the day, right? That's who trained him. That's the pedigree. And the Apostle Paul is perhaps the most educated and brilliant man of the day, right? Author of 13 letters of the New Testament, 28% of the New Testament, written by one man, the Apostle Paul, and yet he knew how to work with his hands. He says 
later, we'll get to this in a couple of chapters in Acts 20, when he's saying his goodbyes to the elders of Ephesus, and he knows he's not going to see them anymore, all right? We'll get to that. It's a fascinating and amazing account. But here's what he says to them. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. Uh, The work that he did uh, is the kind of work that makes your hands hard, rough. We're not talking about, you know, sewing uh, nylon on a sewing machine. He's not tent making like that, right? You know what I'm saying? He's working, pulling, tanning perhaps even the hides. I mean, his hands are rough, stained, and when he's standing there with these men, these elders, these hands, right? Ministered to my own needs and to the men who are with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he gives instruction to the church there, and he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. He says in 2 Thessalonians, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat, eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone's not willing to work, he's not to eat either. Um, it's, it was no different then than it is now. In our day, physical, manual work is despised and looked down on as beneath you, right? If you're, if you're, you know, you're going to work with your mind. That's exactly the same thing. In the Greek culture, that's why he has to always tell them, no, you need to work, men. Now, working with your mind is hard work. I know, I know that's true. I'm, I'm more tired after a day or two of reading, which is what, a lot of what I have to do for my work. It's hard work. Right? Um, but he is in particular talking about working with your hands. And so I just wanted to take the opportunity. I urge you all, especially you men, um, even if you do make a living working with your mind, which is what the Apostle Paul would have done as a rabbi, he was a talker, a writer, a thinker, and yet he had a trade. So you don't necessarily have to make your money with this trade, but you do have to work, right? Yes. Yes. The, so the, the historical situation was the rabbis, there's something, so there is really a cultural difference between uh, Hebrews and Greeks. There are many cultural differences. One of them is that difference. The Greeks despised, the Greek elites despised manual labor, right? The philosophers, the, the upper levels, they would have despised manual labor. Hebrews, the rabbis, uh, even the rabbis kind of insisted that 
every rabbi had a trade. It was, it was part of the cultural understanding that even an academic, right, is going to be a man who can work with his hands. It's just a, a, a different way of thinking about life, and I think obviously a more biblical way of thinking about life because it's coming from the Jews. Okay, there are some, you can read quotes by, by famous, um, I didn't put them in here, by like very highly respected rabbis of the day who say this kind of thing, that a, a man who's a rabbi has to learn, has to know how to work. And I think all academics, including pastors, right, should take that to heart. I think it's right. You worked. Stephen, yes, sir. We've got a work day coming up. <laughs> yes. Yes, Saturday at what? Nine o'clock. There you go. Come and get your hands dirty. Okay. Enough time on that. Oh, boy. So, it says, what is he doing there? He's reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks, is what it says. Um, Got to go back, back, there we go. Reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So again, you see his methods. He reasons and he tries to persuade. He doesn't, you know, threaten them with the sword or, or violence. He argues with them with words, right? And he takes their questions and objections and he reasons with them. But his goal is not just to win them over intellectually. It is to persuade them. Persuasion is more than just mental assent. Uh, a good argument has three things in it. It has to be valid. That means it can't violate the laws of of reason and logic. It has to be sound, which means it has to fit the facts. But it also has to be persuasive. It has to move people to embrace it. And ultimately, that persuasion is the work of the Holy Spirit. But he is, that's his goal, right? He's reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now let's move on quickly here. Uh, Crispus. No? There we go. Verse uh, 5. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, he had left them behind up in Athens, now they're coming to join him, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. So now he's not working anymore. Now he has other people who can work and help support the... So now he's full-time, you could say, right? Which he's not opposed to. In fact, he often insists on it from the churches to support their pastors and so on. So now he began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. So again, no surprise, right? We see the Jews, the unbelieving Jews in opposition. They resisted and blasphemed. Now blasphemy, so what are they saying? They're, they are, we don't know what they're saying exactly, but remember what they said even when Jesus was alive on the earth in his ministry. They were saying that he did his work, his miracles by the power of, the, of Satan, essentially. Right? That's the kind of thing they were saying about him. So maybe something like that. Don't know. But they're certainly blaspheming. They're, they're um, uh, 
blaspheming the name and the person of, of God, the true God, in the person of Jesus. And when they do this, and oh, by the way, this, this, think about this fierce opposition. Um, this fierce opposition to the gospel, as we've seen over and over again, is not rational, right? You understand? It's not, he's, Paul's the one being rational. He's the one arguing and trying to persuade. And their response, whip up a mob and try to kill them. That's what it's been over and over again. There's no argument. They can't argue. Remember what it says about uh, Stephen in, in the early on in the book of Acts in chapter 7? Chapter 7. He preaches to the Jews. And what does it say about, about his preaching? The Jews, it said, could not cope with his wisdom. So what do you do when you can't cope with the wisdom? Well, you kill him. Kill him. That's, you know, same thing. Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's about sending missionaries to India, you say? Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to look into that. They were seaport towns, so yeah. there was all kinds of contact right. between India and Yeah, could be. So, um, the Apostle Paul's response to this, the, the, gen, the Jews are acting like pagans by rejecting their God, the Lord Jesus, and so the Apostle Paul um, treats them as pagans. He shakes the dust out of his clothes, shakes the dust off his feet. That's a sign that all the Jews would have understood because it comes from the Old Testament. I'm, I'm treating you as if you're just total pagans. Now I'm going to the Gentiles. And this one guy, he goes into this house of a man named Titius Justus, who's a worshiper of God. That means he's a Greek, clearly, who is uh, not a Jew, but his house is next to the synagogue. And so he just moves next door, <laughs> right? Starts having church. Verse eight, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And this would be like the pastor. Can you imagine, right? The, I mean, you know, the pastor, the leader of the synagogue, believes the message and becomes a Christian. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized, and the Lord said to Paul in the, in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer. What does that assume? That he had been afraid. <laughs> okay. Don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you like they have in all these other places. Not here. For I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. And so Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. And then all these, many of the Corinthians, this is the beginning of the church in Corinth. This is a mixed congregation of some Jews, like Crispus, but lots of Gentiles. Remember, again, what the Apostle Paul said at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. He says, for consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Now there were some, there were a few like Crispus, right? But most of them are the rabble. Do you remember what, um, I don't have this up here. 
Remember what the Apostle Paul says when he's, again, writing to Corinth. This is the church that he's writing to in First and Second Corinthians. And what does he say about them? Well, like in places like chapter 6, he says this. Um, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. So get the list here, right? Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Right? What's he say next? Such were some of you. In other words, that's when it says here, oh, wrong button. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. That's who he's talking about. He's talking about the fornicators, the idolaters, the adulterers, the effeminate, the homosexuals, the thieves, the covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, those kinds of people. That's who made up the church in Corinth. Not the, not the rich, not, the, uh, not the, the sophisticated, not the, you know, but these kinds of people. That's who's being converted. That's what is hidden between the lines here. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. Isn't that great? Verse 12. Oh, wait. I want to comment real quickly about what Jesus says to him. So the Lord, that's Jesus, comes to Paul in the night by a vision. Don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and don't be silent for I'm with you. Remember what Jesus said to the apostles when he gave the great commission? Go to all the nations, I am with you always. Here he's repeating that specifically to Paul himself. I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. What is that? What is that? What? What does that um, assume? That line right there. No man will, will attack you in order to harm you. God's in, charge. God's in charge. He's in charge. The Lord Jesus is going to make it so that no man attacks him. This is, the, this is the providence of, this is the sovereign control of our Lord Jesus, even over evil men. No man will attack you in order to harm you. Why? Well, I have many people in this city. What does that mean? What is Jesus saying to, to Paul when he says that? I have many people in this city. Well, who is he talking about? Hmm? Not yet. People who, who will, he's saying, settle in here and work. Your work is going to be very fruitful. Don't worry. No one's going to attack you. Settle in and work. And preach and preach and preach because I have many people. I have died for many people in this city. I purchased them with my blood, right? And they are going to believe because you're, I've sent you here to preach the gospel to them. What an, what an amazing um, encouragement. This is not the kind of encouragement that most, that you don't normally, you don't normally get this kind of encouragement. Stay, what's it going to be like? Well, Number one, no one's going to attack you. And number two, you're going to get lots of converts here. So, so stick it out. Right? 
Very encouraging. And so he settled there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. Now let's go on. But while Gallio... was proconsul of Achaia. The Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Now, what law are they talking about? Not the, not the Roman law, but the, the Jewish law, right? The Old Testament law. Is that true? No. Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the law, as he says. So that's a lie. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, (laughs) you know, just about to to make his defense, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or of a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. (laughs) But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I'm unwilling to be a judge of these matters. I mean, we're not even going to go there, right? I'm not even going to let you. Just, no. Paul, don't even open your mouth. I don't even want to hear it. I just don't want to hear it. And he drove them away from the judgment seat. And they all took hold of, not Paul, because Jesus said, no one's going to hurt you, Paul, right? (laughs) So they took hold of Sosthenes, a leader of the synagogue, this apparently is the, is the same guy who is uh, uh, Crispus by a different name. That, that's what people think. Or maybe he's another one of the leaders, of the, another pastor of the synagogue who also was converted. We don't know. So he took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. Now, can you imagine? Picture this. You're a judge in a courtroom and someone, you know, two parties, they bring a charge against this guy, and the judge says, I don't even want to hear it. And then before they even leave the courtroom, they gang up on the guy, another guy, and start beating him in front of the, in front of the judge, right in the courtroom. And what does Gallio do? He was not concerned about any of these things. He's like, ah, whatever, I'm out of here. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'll let them, they'll, they'll, they'll figure this out. It's just, it's amazing. Gallio, oh, what's the guy? You know, how many of you know who Seneca was? Seneca. He was, um, he was a philosopher and was, a, was uh, very high up. He would, would have been a Stoic, I think. Is that correct, Eric? Wasn't he a Stoic philosopher? And was like the teacher of emperors. This is his brother. History tells us this man, Gallio, is is his brother. Isn't that fascinating? Just a little interesting tidbit. Okay, we got to run. Oh, boy. Now, quickly, he gets on the move. He was there for at least a year and a half, probably longer than that, because it says, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren. The church is established. It's planted. And he leaves. He's... Put out, uh, put out to sea for Syria, and with him are Priscilla and Aquila, the tent makers. In Sincrea, he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. Now, that's weird. And after he's leaving Corinth, he, he is the fulfillment of the vow, and he has the haircut. That's how that works. That's part of the vow, if you read about it, I think, in Numbers chapter 6. 
And then it says, um, what's that? Then he makes it to Ephesus. They come to Ephesus and, he, and they, he left them there, left Priscilla and Aquila there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent. But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. So he does come back to Ephesus, as we'll see in a bit. Now, so he goes from Athens to Corinth, goes across to Ephesus, and that's where he is. Then he gets in a boat and goes to Caesarea. All right, so the next verse is really the beginning of the third missionary journey in a, in a kind of weird, soft way. It doesn't really, there's no like clear statement, but that's what's happening. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, probably in Jerusalem, as you see there. And then he went down to Antioch, which we would say up to Antioch, because it's up here. All right. And having spent some time there, he left and passed success, successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So goes from Antioch and goes again through the regions where he's already been. I think that was the wrong map. Oh, well. Now let's go to the next section. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now this Apollos, this is where we'll end, uh, is both eloquent, he's able to speak clearly, and he's mighty in the scriptures, which means he knew the Old Testament. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, needed some help, so Priscilla and Aquila helped him round out his theology where he had gaps and holes, so you could say. He needed more instruction. Uh, now, what's, in, what's amazing about this? Think about this. Apollos is eloquent, mighty in the scriptures, and he's being instructed by whom? Tent makers. Tent makers. He's willing to submit himself to the further, they know more than he does. He's eloquent. He's mighty in the scriptures but he's ignorant about certain things and he submits himself to the instruction of these laborers. That's amazing. You see that kind of thing in the church all the time. It's wonderful. And he was a gifted man. He uh, went across and decided, and then with the support of the church, went over and basically became, went over to Corinth. We know that in the next chapter, chapter 19, he ends up in Corinth. He's helping the church in Corinth. And he's one of the men that the people in the church were gathering around in a divisive way when you get into 1 Corinthians. Remember Paul says, um, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas or Peter, I am of Christ. So he's one of those 
men, that people in the church in Corinth are, are kind of dividing around, if you could put it that way. <laughs> not, not uniting around, but dividing around. Um, including the Apostle Paul himself. Now, some, let me just finish with this. I don't have time to get into this much, but some people want to make Apollos into a bad guy as if he's one of the super apostles that the Apostle Paul is fighting against in First and Second Corinthians. If you remember First and Second Corinthians, he's fighting against these people who are kind of trying to become, trump him and his authority in the church. I don't think that works at all. Okay, I don't think Apollos is a bad guy. Look at what he says, First Corinthians 3. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. You don't get any idea that Paul and Apollos are opposed to each other here. They have different jobs. Paul planted the church, Apollos comes in and waters it. God gives the growth. Chapter 16, but concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren. This is not an enemy of Paul, right? And it wasn't his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Titus 3.13, diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking in them. In other words, this is not a, you don't get any idea that Apollos is somehow a bad guy. Are you all with me? He's a different guy. He has different gifts than Paul. He's a different man. Paul was a planner. Apollos was a waterer. Uh, God gives different kinds of men to lead and teach the church. They weren't at odds with each other. All right? It's natural for people in the church to gravitate around different men based on their preferences or their personality. And the Apostle Paul says, do not do that. We're both just servants. We're different I have different gifts. He has different gifts. God is using us both. Chill out and accept the, the, the various gifts of, of, of the different pastors of the church. All right? There's a good lesson for that, in that for us because we have lots of gifted men here that are different, very different. And, and we should want it that way and we should be very thankful to God for that. I guess it's time to be done. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy in giving us this scripture and for the wisdom that it brings to us. We pray in in Jesus' name, amen.